welcome to Mostly Books Meets. I'm Sarah. I'm Imogen. And I'm Lindsay. And together we are the team at Mostly Books, an award-winning independent bookshop. In this podcast series, we'll be speaking to authors, journalists, poets, and a range of professionals from the world of publishing. We'll be asking about the books that are special to them, from childhood favourites to the book that changed their life. And we hope you'll join us for the journey. Hi, it's Sarah. And this week, I'm talking to multi-award winning children's author and illustrator, Rob Bedolf. As well as working on his own books, he also illustrates for other authors, including Michael Bond and Jeff Brown. And Rob is the official illustrator of World Book Day. In March 2020, in response to the coronavirus pandemic, Rob started running a series of Draw Along YouTube sessions called Draw With Rob. On the 21st of May, he broke the Guinness World Record for the largest ever online art class when 45,611 people tuned into one of his classes. Rob's latest picture book, Dog Von, came out in paperback on the 18th of February, and his latest activity book, Draw With Rob, Build a Story, came out on the 4th of March. Rob, welcome to Mostly Books Meets. Oh, thank you for having me, Sarah. It's nice to be here. It's great to have you. You know, when I was doing that introduction and planning what I was going to say about you, I just couldn't quite get my head around that volume of people. <laughs> 45,611. I know. Well, do you know what? Actually, it was 45,611 or whatever it was, household. So we reckon it was at least twice that number of people, maybe even three times, because obviously usually it's two or three people sitting around a laptop. So that's even more kind of mind boggling, isn't it? Just bonkers. Yeah, it really is. Yeah. Just amazing. We'll chat about that later, if you don't mind. But okay. as I tend to do with all of my podcasts, I tend to go right back initially and start off by talking about your childhood. Yeah. So let's do that. You grew up in Potter's Bar. I did. With your parents and your brother and sister. Yeah. Your dad worked at a firm that made typewriters, which just fascinated me, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> but kind of typewriters. Yeah, all sorts of office equipment. There were a big company called Olympia International. There's the typewriters that I remember. And then I think, you know, early computers and word processors, that kind of thing as well. So yeah, it was always very exciting to go and you know when I had a day off school I could go with him to work and it was really good fun kind of playing around with all these typewriters and you know lots of paper and pens around for me to draw on and stuff like that so yeah it was fun. As a kid that's just like the coolest thing ever isn't it? Exactly yes it really is. <laughs> and your mum stayed at home with you and your, your siblings? She did. I understand that you were quite an arty family thanks to your mum's love of painting. Yeah but my dad notwithstanding is not in any way arty but yeah my mum was always painting and drawing and she would always do the certificates for my football club for all the kids you know all that kind of thing so she was very very arty I don't particularly remember her sitting us down with pencils and paper but we were always drawing so I guess there was lots of art equipment around the house so yeah all three of us were really into it so it was a nice kind of household to grow up in absolutely and I think that's quite a lot when I speak to illustrators there's something about kids and drawing they're always putting their pen to paper and they always draw and for some reason some people then just grow out of it but the magic of being able to draw from a really young age is a real thing isn't it just be able to create it really is and I totally agree with you that people grow out of it although I think it's all to do with kind of confidence because I think most children I've discovered this in the course of doing these Draw With Rob videos lots of adults have been re-engaging with their kind of creative side and drawing along with me and I think what happens is you sort of draw with abandon really up until about the age of nine or ten you don't really care how good you are you just do it for the love of doing it and then something kicks in around nine or ten 
which, you know, maybe there's somebody in your class who is, you know, as you see it better than you at drawing and all your confidence disappears and you suddenly just think of yourself as somebody who's not very good at drawing and then you don't draw anymore, really, unless you have to in your art class in secondary school. And of course, as I say in my videos, everybody can draw. It's just you need to kind of realign your perception of what good drawing is because it's not a binary thing, drawing. There's no right or wrong answer. It's all subjective. Yeah, it's quite interesting, I think, that. Yeah, you're totally right. I have really strong memories of being at secondary school and feeling like I couldn't draw at all. But like you say, at primary school, there was no problem. But something happened. No, definitely, yeah. Were you always the arty kid at school then? I was. My mum, she said they always knew that I had a talent for it. And as long as I can remember, I've always been the, the arty kid. You know, at secondary school, I always drew the posters for all the school plays, even when I was in year seven, you know, <laughs> and there were six formers in the play. I was doing the posters. And I think it's just because I did it so much. I drew so much. Maybe there was fewer distractions back then. I was either, you know, I was outside playing football or I was indoors drawing pictures. And I think, you know, with anything, again, this is something I always say to children, the more you do something, the better you get at it, whether that's playing the piano or you're learning a foreign language or whatever it is the more you do it the better you get and I was just drawing so much that was such a big part of my identity the arty kid that's very cool did you read a lot as a child I did when I was very young, picture book age. I've got one of these strange memories. I remember a lot from my childhood, from my particularly from my very young childhood. You know, I can almost remember the reading books we first learned to read with in reception. I can remember them in order, you know, the first five or six. And I loved reading and bedtime stories and all that kind of thing were a big deal in my house. But then I think it definitely dropped off a bit with me, maybe around the age of maybe nine or ten. I think when people usually move on to middle grade, mm -hmm. I think I just kind of dropped off a little bit. And then I re-engaged again when I started studying English Lit for my GCSEs, sort of read a few of the classics at school. I, that sort of reignited my passion for reading. Yeah, I, I would say I was quite a big reader, certainly when I was very young. What was the first book you remember reading? Ah, well, I remember the very first book that we learned to read with was something called The Cherry Family. Now, I've looked it up since and I cannot find it anywhere. And so I don't know who the author was. And I don't really remember that much about the story. So the first one I really remember was the second book in our reading list. And that was Dogger by Shirley Hughes. Oh, yeah. It's a total classic, but I've got really vivid pictures in my head of some of those illustrations. I remember there's a scene where all the kids are kind of in fancy dress and there was a Dalek from Doctor Who. <laughs> And that was super exciting when I was five years old, because I don't think I was allowed to watch Doctor Who, but I knew what it was. I just really remember the story and that, you know, the act of kindness from the little boy's sister in the story. I think she finds Doggo is his little cuddly toy dog that he loses and it turns up at a summer fair or at the school on one of the kind of tombola stands. And his sister manages a li another little child, buys his dog because he's lost it at the summer fair. It turns up on the stand. She buys it and, the, and his sister kind of, who has won this huge teddy bear on the tombola, exchanges her huge teddy bear to get little Dave's cuddly toy back and this huge act of kindness really stayed with me I think and and reading it as an adult now you know I read it to my own children and now as somebody who makes picture books you can look at it from a slightly different point of view and it's incredible how Shirley's managed to get this such a sort of complete story arc in so few pages which is really it's one of the trickiest things about writing a picture book you know you have 26 or 27 pages to tell your story and particularly in that book she is the master it's just it's an extraordinary bit of storytelling I think I think people really underestimate the complexity around putting a children's picture book together because I think you're absolutely right you've got a novel yeah. not that that's easy either but you have an awful lot of words and an awful lot of content that you yeah. can get that message across but a picture book is a very small number of words it's hard it really is every single word has to count really funnily enough I've just written my first novel so my first middle grade book it was much easier <laughs> I mean it took you know 45,000 words long compared to my picture books which are six or seven hundred but you're right every single word every single line counts every single line has to move 
move the story on. And I write in rhyme, which makes it even trickier to get your story across. Yeah, it's very, very hard. It's quite annoying sometimes. People will say to me, oh, so you only write um, picture books. Is that all you do? And you're like, oh my gosh, right? You need to have a go at writing one yourself because you'll see how hard it is. Some of those texts, they take five minutes to read, but they can take me six months or a year to write to get it kind of perfect. It sort of does great slightly when people think that it's an easy thing to do because it really isn't. Trust me. (laughs) Were there any other authors that you remember being really influenced by as a child? Well, I can really remember, well, I still love Richard Scarry, anything by Richard Scarry, particularly the one that I really loved the most was a book called What Do People Do All Day, which kind of like showed lots of different kind of professions. I'll tell you what the genius of Richard Scarry is, is the detail in the drawing. So I remember there's one particular spread that's got a great big, I think it's a big cruise ship, but he's drawn a cross section of this cruise ship. So you can see how not only all the cabins and where the staff sleep and where the restaurant bit is and all that kind of thing, but also how the propellers work and how the rudders work. You know, I, I think I learned a lot about basic engineering through reading those not that I know that much about basic engineering but you know just like you know how a house is kind of plumb in a very kind of rudimentary way that kind of thing I sort of learned from his books and the genius thing is every time you read one of his books you see something you haven't spotted before and that is another crucial thing that we have to do because I illustrate the books as well as write them so what I do you sort of tell one part of the story with your words and then you tell a whole other part of the story with your pictures because most of the time children they're not reading picture books on their own they're reading it with a parent or a guardian and so the children will be looking at the pictures in great detail while the parent reads. So you want to do a bit of visual storytelling with the pictures. And I always have layers of detail so that seventh or eighth reading, something somebody will spot something they haven't seen before, which I think is crucial to the longevity of a good picture book. And again, Ritter Scarry is the master of that. But I also remember the Megan Mogg books. Do you know those? Yeah by Jan Pinkowski. I mean, I loved those. I remember sitting in Mrs. Harris's class in reception. She would read those on a Friday story time and absolutely loved all of those books. Something about the illustrations are so deceptively simple. They look like they'd be very easy to do. But again, it's a bit like writing a picture book. You have to be a real master of your craft to draw that expressively with so few lines. You know, I think he was an absolute master. And of course, The Tiger Who Came to Tea as well is something that's stuck with me as it has everybody I think who's ever read it, particularly that nighttime story street scene where they go out to a cafe for their tea, which was unbelievably exotic and posh. When I was a kid, it was like, oh my gosh, somebody goes to a cafe and they have ice cream and sausages. And the picture is just so atmospheric, nighttime scene and the lights from inside the cafe going to the, I think she was, she might have even been wearing her pajamas when she went and it was just, I mean, again, I was lucky enough to meet Judith Carr actually. And um, oh my goodness. yeah, another genius. They're the ones that stick out. Oh, that must've been wonderful meeting her. She's absolutely fabulous. Her books are amazing. Oh yeah, she was. And the books you're talking about there, you talk about Doggo, Richard Scarry's, but also Judith's. I mean, they're all completely timeless classics and they keep selling. And yeah. one of our best sellers for Christmas just gone was Dogger's Christmas by Shirley Hughes. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. See, I haven't read that one. It's very... Is it good? Is it? Yeah. <laughs> Of course it is. Of course it is. So throughout, throughout your teens, you already mentioned this, you were sporty as well as interested in your books. And, and I was, yeah. They were my two things. I was good at football and I was quite fast. In fact, I was district champion at 100 metres. I was sub 11 seconds for 100 metres, so I was very fast. But yeah, football I really loved. My uncle was a footballer. He played for Brighton and various teams. But weirdly, my dad wasn't at all into football. And so I would make him take me to Arsenal games every now and then. And he'd, he would, of course, come with me every Saturday and stand on the touchline, totally bored in this freezing 
freezing cold and the rain watching me play. But it wasn't his thing, really. He didn't ever, I think lots of parents were kind of pushing their children to get better and ringing up local clubs to do the scouting and all that kind of thing, which didn't really happen for me until later, until I was probably about 16 or 17, which these days is way too late if you want to be a professional footballer. But I started, I played for a local club and I was scoring a lot of goals. And so, yeah, I had some offers to go and to play semi-professionally when I was about 18. And so I did have to make a bit of a decision at that point because that's when I just started at art college as well. And I played for my university first team, which is quite a high standard. There was lots of kids there who had been on the books of professional clubs and they were so good. And I knew I was good, but when I was playing with these boys, I was like, oh, I'm not quite as good as I thought I was. And I think at that point, I realised that I didn't think I'd ever be good enough to play at the very top level of football. I could probably play in the lower leagues. And so I had to make a decision there and then whether I went sort of gung-ho into football and started, you know, because if you play semi-professionally, you have to train three or four times a week. And it would really have affected my degree course. I'm, I'm not sure I could have done both. So at that point, I thought, right, I'll just play football for fun and I'll try and make a career in the world of illustration and art and that kind of thing. And actually, you know, I think I made the right decision. <laughs> Although there were times when I was like, oh, what if, you know, but um, yeah. <laughs> Here I am. So. That's a tough decision to make at that age because they're both yeah. interesting and varied career path. Yeah. And I think the world of football, particularly for young boy, young girl, would feel quite glamorous, wouldn't it? Yeah, yeah. So I think it was quite a sensible decision. Yeah, it was a tough decision, but I think it, I'm pretty sure it was the right one. I don't think I was quite good enough, but hey. So you, as you mentioned, you went to university. So you did an art foundation course and yeah. then went on to study visual communication design at Middlesex. Yes, yes. And then after you leave university, you did a number of jobs. You worked at The Observer, The Enemy, Sky, yep. Just 17. Can yep. I just say Enemy, loved it. Yeah. Big fan when I was a kid. Yeah, it was a nice job. It didn't feel like proper work. In fact, none of it really felt like proper work. It was all such good fun. Yeah, but the enemy in particular, you got to listen to music on the stereo all day, really interesting new music. And if you wanted to, you could go to a gig every single night, just put your name on the list that was pinned to the door. You know, it was a really fun time. And I was there 2001 to 2006. So the my era was the White Stripes and the Strokes and a bit of Oasis still and Blur and that kind of thing. Yeah, so it was, it was a really fun job. And like you, I was lucky enough to work somewhere that I was a fan of you know I'd read The Enemy as well and I was also a big Guardian and Observer reader so when I ended up there that felt a bit like coming home as well so yeah I loved my I had the yeah 20 year magazine and newspaper career wow. what pushed you to make the change to start writing and illustrating full-time well, illustration was something I'd always done. In fact, when I first went to art college, day one of my foundation course, thinking I wanted to be a painter, that's what I wanted to do, be a fine artist. And it was in the course of my foundation year that I thought, actually, it might be nice to earn a bit of money at some point. <laughs> and so that's when I kind of switched over to graphic design and started studying basically yeah, visual communication design, graphic design. But I'd always kept up the illustration on the side. So whatever magazine I was working for, my first job was on, as you said, Just 17. I'd sort of do a quite kind of poppy style of illustration every now and then to illustrate one of the features when we didn't have a photo shoot and the same at the enemy I was sort of like an illustrative chameleon because I would just change my style for whatever magazine I was working on right up through to the observer which is my final newspaper job and do some really nice well rendered pencil sketches that kind of thing but I always kept up the illustration and then I guess what changed everything was when I had children and started buying picture books to read to them as their bedtime stories and I thought to myself I remember there was a couple the two I really remember that made me think this is something that I'd like to have a go at were how the Grinch Stole Christmas by Dr. Zeus, which that was more from a words point of view, because I'd also done a little bit of writing wherever I'd worked as well, particularly on Just 17 magazine. Uh, the, I did the letters page. I was kind of the editor of the letters page, not the problems page, the 
letters page, you know, <laughs> that people would write in asking for posters of Leonardo DiCaprio and we'd sort of write pithy, funny replies to the letters. And I'd always really enjoyed that. And for some reason, I was discovered I was quite good at writing in rhyme. I don't know why I was writing rhyme on Just 17. I can't really remember. But um, when I read the Doctor's Use books, particularly How the Grinch Stole Christmas, I was just blown away at his mask. Obviously, I mean, again, pretty much everything I'm going to say today is obvious, but he is obviously the master of writing in rhyme. And I realised it's no good if you have to speed up your reading to make the rhyme fit. It has to be absolutely perfect and on the beat and no partial rhymes, all that kind of thing. And the thing about The Grinch is just how funny it is. And it still rhymes. And the story moves on with every rhyme, with every line. And there's no wasted words. And I just thought, oh, it's absolutely brilliant. And it's such fun. The key with a rhyming story is the read aloud. So when I'm writing, I've got one of those little posh shed things at the end of the garden. And my wife says she often looks out and sees me pacing around talking to myself. And that's because I'm reading everything I write. I'm saying it out loud because that's the acid test of a good rhyming story. The rhythm has to flow and the punchlines have to sort of work with, it's like a song really, you know, everything has to work within the parameters of the structure of the rhyme. And obviously he's the master. And the other book that I guess this is the one that really made me want to do it was The Incredible Book Eating Boy by Oliver Jeffers, which I just thought was a total work of art. I don't know if you've seen it too. I think he went to a secondhand bookshop and bought lots of secondhand books, really old kind of vintage books. And he took them apart and he painted the illustrations on the covers and on the inside pages and photographed them. So there's this really tactile texture to all the illustrations. And it really is a total work of art. And, you know, I, as I said, I'm a graphic designer. I'm really into boring things like typography and fonts and all that kind of stuff. And his design choices, I just thought, was so interesting. And they really chimed with me from both a designer's point of view and an illustrator's point of view. And I just thought, what a nice thing to do, you know, to start a project from scratch and curate every aspect of it. I think somebody who writes and illustrates a picture book is they're sort of like, if you equate it to film, they are the director, they're the casting person, they're the person who lights it, costume designer, script editor, you know, all those things. It's quite unusual having that much control over a product, I think. From somebody, from a creative person's point of view, that really appealed to me. Because magazine work is lovely, but it's a real team game. Sometimes that can be a little bit frustrating when your ideas don't kind of make it through. And so I think seeing Oliver's work and seeing what you know what you can achieve really spurred me on to have a go myself. That combined with the Dr. Seuss writing. So I decided quite early on that when my, it was on my middle daughter, it was probably about three or four, I thought, right, I'm going to have a go at writing my own story. And of course, my children at that age were coming up with really funny little phrases and little things left, right and centre. So I was writing little notes down and you know coming up with these little story ideas. And so, yeah, I thought, all right, I'm going to have a go. Not knowing anything about the industry, not knowing how difficult it would be. And it proved, yeah, it took quite a long time <laughs> to get published though. I think it was like four or five years from when I first had that idea. That's how long it took me because it's so, I mean, again, that's something I don't think people understand just how difficult it is to get a picture book published these days. It's a hugely competitive market, but you know, we got there in the end. <laughs> and did you get that? The books you've produced have been hugely successful and continue to be so. So it's uh, the thing I always find really interesting when I speak to people that have written books is like you say, you have this period of time where you're working on your first book and you're going out and you're trying to get agents and trying to get your first publishing deal. And then when you do, yeah. then when you have to then produce your second book, it's all, it's yeah. a very different thing, isn't it? A very different yeah, time, yeah, yeah. Right, very different pressures. It's just so interesting. That's very true. Yeah, I mean, my path was quite unusual, I think, because I got an agent straight away and I got a lot of very positive comments from that agent. And then, I mean, long story short, I bet it didn't work out with that agent in the end because her boss said they didn't really want to represent anybody doing picture books. So I changed agents again. This time, still did really well. I got in the room with every publisher, pretty much all the big publishers in London, but I just couldn't quite get a book over the line. 
and so right from the beginning I was so close yet so far and then it just yeah when it happened it happened very very quickly and very I was taking another book around to everybody and in the process of that a couple of publishers saw a little drawing of a penguin I'd done in my portfolio and they said oh have you got a story for this character here and I didn't really but I did have another story that I thought oh I could just put penguins into that story <laughs> which is exactly what I did I just literally transplanted a few penguins into this story and I sort of polished the story off very quickly in a week or two as soon as I went back into various publishers with this new story all of them started offering me a deal instantly bear in mind I'd had four or five years of being so close to getting published that it was quite overwhelming when it finally happened and the way that it happened yeah it was crazy but yes you're right coming up with the second story is a very different experience actually but I think because I'd taken a while trying to be published I did have a quite a backlog of ideas Mm -hmm. so I was able to go to HarperCollins and say well I've got this 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 and this and they sort of say right focus on that one and that's how it's been ever since really I've still got this backlog of ideas and it's nice all those years of doing it on my own Mm -hmm. you know four or five years it's nice to have a team around you that you can have a bit of back and forth and who will contribute ideas here and there so yeah it's a really nice process actually it's really nice Mm. and yeah the HarperCollins are a great publishing house the team in the London office are really lovely they're very supportive of us in the kind of bookshop so we love them (laughs) good me too me too so these days you live and work in London with your wife and your three daughters Mm -hmm. in March 2020 this country was put down into lockdown as we all know as a result of the coronavirus pandemic and we are still living with that now as we're recording this today we're in our third national lockdown but your response to that was that you decided to do something different to other people's you created something called Draw with Rob Mm -hmm. which was a series of draw along videos that you posted on YouTube I think initially you were doing was it twice weekly initially? Twice weekly yeah in the first instance yeah Tuesdays and Thursdays. So where did that idea come from? What made you do it? Well for a start I've been doing the draw alongs for years at my live events. That's another thing I didn't realise about being a children's author was I think about a month after I signed my contract with HarperCollins they said to me right you need to develop an act and you need to go out on the road and I was like excuse me what? I'm the person who sits in the shed drawing pictures not really talking to anybody and I'm like no you've got to get up on the stage and entertain hundreds of children. One of my very first events was on the stage at the Royal Festival Hall in front of about 300 children. Oh my goodness. And that was like oh my goodness but then I realised very early on if you stand on a stage and you draw a picture and the children see you can draw then you've got them they're on your side because kids of that age they think drawing is a superpower so if they see you draw that's it you're laughing you're fine and actually I discovered really early on that I loved doing my live events I really liked the back and forth with the kids I didn't get nervous going on the stage which I was amazed at because I was never in any of the school plays or anything like that and I really really loved it I knew I must be quite good at talking to children because I think that's a skill do you know what lots of authors I know are brilliant absolutely super talented but lots of them are much younger than me they don't have children of their own I don't think I could have done it had I not been a dad because for a start I think I was used to talking to children I think that informed my writing but also my live events massively we've had lots of kids parties here where the house has been full of 35 year olds and that's bad you know me and my wife we have to kind of marshal these kids and you sort of just get to know how to talk to kids Mm -hmm. and don't talk down to them I learned that early on you don't do little baby voices all that kind of stuff you just talk to them as if they're little grown-ups and they respond really well to that and so that's what I did at my live events and when I did the draw-alongs the first question I ask is hands up who doesn't think they're very good at drawing of course all these hands would go up and I'd say right we're going to show you that anyone can draw and then I'd do my draw along I'd break each drawing down into very simple little shapes and I would draw it on my piece of paper then the kids would draw what I drew and then I'd draw a bit more then they would draw you know and at the end we end up with this lovely picture and the kids would hold their drawings up and I was amazed at the quality of the drawings these kids were holding up and they were too they just couldn't believe they produced these pictures themselves so I knew that obviously 
actually, I must be quite good at doing this with the kids. And I'd done it. I'd had put a draw with Rob video online back in 2016. I'd done two or three. And then I just sort of forgotten about it, moved on to the next thing. So we were sitting there. It was a Sunday night. And I was sitting with my wife. We were watching the news. And they were talking about how the schools were about to be closed down as we went into full lockdown. And I just said, you know what? We knew what it was like in the summer holidays when we had three children at home looking for things to do. It can be a real nightmare. So I thought, right, I think I can help some parents out here. That's what I was mainly thinking in the first instance. I was thinking with the parents. I was thinking, right, I'll give them a bit of respite for an hour or so, a couple of times a week by recording one of these videos and putting it up online. So what I did was I got one of my old videos and I put a little teaser up online that night. I just did a little tweet, I think. And the response was unbelievable on that Sunday night. Yes, please. That'll be a great idea. So I recorded the first video on the Monday, put it up on the Tuesday. And I'm not joking. I was on BBC Breakfast and News at 10 on Wednesday. It was unbelievable. Oh my goodness. The response was just immediate and massive. And I think I, I sort of asked myself, God, why did this? I mean, it was partly it was because I'm videos. I think I got the tone right of my videos. The camera wasn't on me. It wasn't about me. It was about the drawing. The camera was just pointing down at the piece of paper straight into the drawing. And so the kids were getting really good results. I think it was a timing thing because lots of other authors did it after me, but they didn't quite get the numbers that I got. So I think it was one of those things. I was the first one to do it. So everyone kind of latched onto me at the beginning. But also, I think it's something that people really wanted at that time, because particularly the first lockdown was a very unsettling and stressful time. I think my Twitter and Instagram and Facebook timelines were a little oasis of joy in this kind of desert of despair, because it was just all full of pictures of kids holding up their drawings and smiling and these lovely pictures of dinosaurs and sausage dogs and things like that. I think people just really responded well to that, apart from anything else. And yeah, it's been unexpected, but really lovely and sort of life-affirming adventure, actually, because I miss meeting my readers. I usually go out a lot to festivals and schools and I get lots of interaction with the kids. And so, you know, I've missed that, but I have got it kind of in a digital form, a virtual form throughout through these uh, draw with Rob videos. Yeah, that's a long answer, wasn't it? Sorry. <laughs> no, but brilliant. Totally justified because I think what you've done is amazing. And we were chatting before we started recording. My little six-year-old nephew is a big fan. Oh. And, you know, seeing how excited he gets about the fact that he can sit and do this with you. And then at the end, he can produce something. Like you say, the quality of his drawings that come yeah. out of it is just it's fantastic and he's so proud and it's yeah. just lovely to see yeah it's another thing that i think is quite important that lots of children unless they can get their drawing to look exactly like you know what they're copying they will screw it up and throw it away and say no good at drawing but i'm very much as i sort of mentioned earlier there's no right or wrong answer with drawing so i say to the kids if you make a mistake just keep on going there's no right or wrong answer and actually i say you know when we have those little happy accidents they're often the bits of the drawing that add the personality to it and we all start at the same place we all draw the same animal but no two animals look the same at the end and I think that's really lovely great to see when they all hold up their drawings I love it fantastic so you're pretty busy at the moment do you find time to read do you read at all do you know what? When I first, when I was first published back in 2014, I stayed, I was at The Observer and I stayed there for about three years doing my day job during the week and then writing and illustrating the books sort of every weekend. Mm. And I only left to do the books full time. Oh, actually, it's probably quite a long time ago now, about four or five years. But the thing I really miss, I miss all the people and I miss the job. It's a lovely job, but I really miss my commute because that is where <laughs> I've realised I did most of my reading. The vast majority was that 45 minutes in the morning, 45 minutes home again. It's where I read because I noticed that certainly the 
first couple of years, I was just hardly reading at all because I just didn't get time. working so hard and then I'd go home, a bit of family time, sit in front of West Wing or something with my wife. Mm-hmm. And then I was going to bed just falling asleep. I couldn't read at night. I was so tired. So yeah, it's definitely dropped off. I've tried, I'm really making an effort now to try and pick back up again, but I, it's, I don't read anywhere near the amount that I used to. But, you know, I listen to a lot of podcasts, a couple of audio books here and there, and I've started making myself read Last Thing at Night, trying to get half an hour in every night. So I plough through a few books because there's loads I want to read. My wife's a journalist and she's a huge reader. So she's got this big stack of books she's read. And I'm so jealous. <laughs> that I'm missing out on all this stuff. But yeah, hopefully I'll get a bit more time. What was the last book you did manage to read? Uh, well, I read, uh, what have I read? Oh, Where the Crawdads Sing. I loved that. That was brilliant. But that was one my wife said, you have to read this one because I think that's it. I seem to like, it's weirdly, when I was thinking about what books I would mention for this podcast, I realised that I like lots of books that are set in the deep south of America. It seems to be a real common thread <laughs> through the books that I've really stuck with me throughout my life. Things like Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil and stuff like Secret Life of Bees. I love that book. And even when I was in my teens, I read some early John Grisham books that were set in the deep south. Couldn't tell you anything about the plots of those books but i remember the fact that they were all eating grits and uh, biscuits and gravy and stuff like that so i think there's some kind of, i don't know what it is but it's that atmosphere particularly with crawdads it was, it was such an atmospheric book wasn't it yeah i was about to say that that's one of the characters in itself i think in that book way oh totally the swamp, swamp yeah yeah it's funny that book because it was one that came in and we kind of we knew that it had been well received but it just kind of sat on the shelf with us for a little bit and then suddenly we realized that we just couldn't keep it in the shop every time we got it back in it went straight out. Oh, really? yeah and we were buying in bulk in the end it was one of our best sellers I think it was our best selling paperback last year just absolutely outstanding read I think the thing about it is it appeals to a lot of heart a wide range of readers yeah you know from different backgrounds and different preferences as well so yeah yes definitely definitely i guess i tend to read because i read with the kids at bedtime still and so i've read quite a lot of middle grade stuff that's probably what i read more than anything else you know? i was going to ask you about that because i figured you probably did yeah 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 i mean all Catherine rundell's books we've read i think we've read all of them certainly you know rooftoppers we absolutely love the wolf wilder explorer books like that the wild robot books by peter brown do you know those yeah yeah brilliant yeah we absolutely love those i mean it's quite interesting because depending on how my children react to these stories, that's how I react as well. So this is all through the filter of my 10-year-old at the time, you know, but they're the ones that she's responded really well to. And The Boy at the Back of the Class by Anjali Ralph, we love that. That's one of those books that I could barely get through it. I was like literally from about the fourth chapter in tears every night reading that story yeah. with my kids. But it is a lovely, lovely book. And yeah, I guess that's most of the reading I do is really middle grade, I guess. I read a few picture books for research as well. Yeah, We've got a couple of author-illustrators, picture book illustrators that live in our town and we often find them coming in and browsing through other picture books for inspiration so i'm sure that's something you do a lot of well i do i tell you what i did it a lot at the beginning before i was published probably more than i do now because actually there's something to be said for not doing that as well because you don't accidentally want to get too in inverted commas influenced by another illustrator (laughs) because it's very easy to do that see what somebody else is doing and sort of think oh you know i could do something like that and you know what happens is all of the picture books on the shelf gradually become homogenized particularly somebody like oliver jeffers there's suddenly about five or six years ago lots of books sprang up that looked exactly like his books because once you see it and you see how good it is sometimes it can be hard not to try and copy that so i don't do that as much as i used to and that's a kind of a conscious effort but every now and then an amazing book will pop up like how to be a lion by ed veer springs to mind or any of oliver's books or do you know jarvis the illustrator 
I love it. I did an event with him. Oh. It was definitely the best live kids event I've ever seen. He's so funny. And his books are so funny too. There's one called Alan's Big Scary Teeth. It's about a crocodile called Alan. I love that. And another one I really liked recently was Look Up, illustrated by Dapo Adiola and written by Nathan Bryan. I think that won the Waterstones Prize last year. And that one was a real breath of fresh air as well. So I do try and keep up to date, but maybe not as much as I used to. And of those, they're all quite varied as well. So it just gets to show you get your inspiration in different ways. Yes, yes. Now, yeah. You've written a great selection of kids' books. And I'm sure that for an author, asking them to choose their favourite book is like asking them to choose their favourite child. But I'm going to do yeah. that, I'm afraid. And if someone had to read one of your books, yes. which one would you recommend? And what is it about? Well, I did get a bit of a chance to think about it. <laughs> it is difficult because as soon as I finish a book, I love that book for about a week. I love it. And then I go the other way and I'm like, oh dear, no, I think it might be terrible. And you have that weird time between when you've finished it and it coming out where you suddenly I get really insecure about it. And so I always think that when I look back after a year or so, usually after a year, I've got a good perspective on what I think of my own work. So I'm going to choose a book that I wrote a few years ago and it's called Odd Dog Out. And so that's the one I would tell, that'd be my kind of go-to choice to tell people to read if they want to know what my books are like because so what it is in case well I'm sure lots of your listeners won't have seen it before but it's about a sausage dog who lives in a world entirely populated by sausage dogs but she doesn't fit in she's the odd dog out so everybody else in this world they sort of all toe the line they all dress the same way do the same things and she is kind of she's her own little personality but she doesn't like that so she decides right I'm going to leave my hometown I'm going to go and find somewhere where I do fit in so she goes on this huge odyssey across the globe and she ends up in a place where everybody does look like like her and everybody is into the same things that she's into and in the course of being in this place she meets another dog who doesn't fit into this particular place and she says oh poor thing you know I know what it's like to be the odd dog out and this chap says well no actually I love being the odd one out I love being different I love just being myself it's really important that you can be yourself so she learns this lesson and she goes back to her hometown where of course everybody's really missed her because she is different she's really engaging with it so everybody else really really loves her and they all start realizing actually the best thing you can be is your Yourself. And so the final scene of the book is all these sausage dogs all dressed up differently and doing their own thing. And the message is blaze a trail, be who you are. And not only was it a really fun book to illustrate, because who doesn't love drawing sausage dogs? <laughs> but the reaction I had was incredible, actually. I couldn't, because most of my stories, there is a little message kind of underneath, underpinning the story. Hopefully not too overt, but there's always a message, whether it's be it about, you know, home or friendships, whatever. But you don't always know whether that's going to land or not. But this one really, really did seem to land. And and it really hit home. Two or three years ago, I went on a tour of Russia. So I went to Moscow and to St. Petersburg on tour. Wow. And I think I was in St. Petersburg. I was being interviewed by one of the Russian papers because one of the things that in Odd Dog Out, the protagonist wears a rainbow scarf. So there's lots of allusions to LBTQ kind of characters. And the publicist said, don't mention any of that. Don't mention that. And I was like, why not? She said, well, in Russia, it's illegal. It's not illegal to be gay, but it's illegal to kind of talk about it and promote it. Mm. So we don't want you to talk about that because we don't want your books to be taken off the shelves. And I was like, oh, God. So we did the interview. I think I did talk about it. Um, she was like shaking her head and so I was like oh I just did I had no idea that it was like this in Russia and then I was in we were at the Moscow book fair and I did my event and I had translation all that kind of stuff and then they send you off to your little stand where you sit and you do your signing and I thought oh I've got a really long queue and I had this huge queue snaking around the, the place where the conference is and I noticed that there was hardly any children and of course it wasn't it was like a trade thing there wasn't that many children there but it was all adults and they would come up to me and some of them had tears in their eyes and they would say you don't know how important 
innocent this book is because you know these people they would say i'm gay but i'm not allowed to say that i'm gay and the fact that you put this idea into a book that's for really young children is so important so they don't grow up thinking being different is a terrible thing which obviously is still a bit of a big deal in russia Mm. and so my wife was with me and both of us were in tears instantly of course so i think that's when i realized the power of writing books for very young children there's quite a responsibility i think in lots of ways because for lots of children this is their introduction to the world into thinking and ideas that kind of thing you know their first experience of reading books so yeah that was very very proud when that happened that's amazing and i do think that is the power of a picture book i think picture book section is one of my favorite sections in the shop because i just think like you say the way that you can get core messages to kids in an interesting way that keeps their attention it's just a really clever way of getting good thoughts into children's minds i think i think they're very very powerful tools as well as amazing things to enjoy so i'm kind of aware of time so we chatted for a while but i did want to ask you i have a theory that everybody that reads has a book that has had an impact on them at some point in their life the book that changed their life be that professionally be that personally do you have a book like that and if so what is that i do i do and it's probably hundreds and thousands of other people's you know (laughs) favorite book that changed their life too and yeah i alluded to it when i was talking about books set in the deep south of america so the book for me is to kill a mockingbird by harper lee now that's the one i said earlier you know my reading sort of dropped off when i was sort of 11 12 13 until i started doing my english literature gcse and i think the first book that we studied was to kill a mockingbird and it blew me away it absolutely blew me away on so many levels for a start it was definitely the first book that i can remember moving me to tears i genuinely think that it affected the way that i lived my life that whole thing Atticus saying you know always imagine yourself in somebody else's shoes before you judge them and put yourself in somebody else's place and that's something that i always try to live my life by and i genuinely can trace that back to me reading that book aside from that the fact that it's so beautifully written and so evocative and paints pictures in your mind and how amazing the portrayal of all the characters is and how you feel like you know every single character in that book you know i'd never been to the deep south of america so i don't really know how life is there but i kind of think i've got a pretty good idea from that book certainly maybe 60 years ago where that book was set and then the ending i'm sure there's not anybody listening to this who doesn't know what happens at the end but i'm still reluctant to spoil it but that ending the boo radley ending is just like oh you know i read it to two out of three of my daughters as a kind of a bedtime story when they were sort of 14 years old and every single time again I, there's a couple of lines in there that i just can't get out my voice just go can't oh. you know it means so much to me that book i reckon I, I genuinely think i've read it seven or eight times i've watched the gregory peck film countless times as well i've made my youngest daughters watch that my 11 year old so it's a real for me it's definitely the book that's closest to my heart and i honestly think it did change my life apart from anything else it got me reading again so that's quite important yeah. Yeah, I was about to say that. It's a great book to bring you back into the fold again. Yeah. So excellent. So let's just go back to your books for a minute. You've got a couple of books out. Okay. The latest Draw With Rob activity book, Build a Story, is out on the 4th of March. Yeah. And the paperback of your most recent picture book, Dog Gone, was published in early February. You yeah. seem to be extremely busy. <laughs> How do you manage your time with all of this? Oh my gosh. Well, before Draw With Rob, I had a schedule up until 2023, pretty much every month accounted for doing. And I'm very organised. And I'm one of these people who likes checkbox lists. I've got a big wall chart on my wall, literally blocked out everything I'm doing every single day. And it now goes up to the end of 2024. And I realised I'm incredibly lucky to be in this position. One of the very first things my agent said to me was, it's very hard to make a living just doing this. Most people have another job. And from quite early on, I was lucky enough to be able to do it full time. 
So I know that I'm very lucky to be able to do that. And I'm even luckier to have so many people who seem to want to work with me. So there's not a day goes by that I'm not very thankful for that. And I think maybe that's because I came to it slightly late. I've already had a one career. So I certainly don't take this for granted. That being said, <laughs> I would like a bit more breathing space because it's unbelievable my schedule. So since I did the draw with Rob thing, not only do I have to record and edit the videos, there's a one video every week that I do, which is very time consuming because it's not only the recording of the video, it's like coming up with the characters to draw working out how to do that and then it's the editing and all that kind of stuff afterwards as you know doing a podcast <laughs> but also the activity books which are fab I love doing them and they're hugely successful but I basically had to crowbar them into my already packed schedule so now I really just feel like I'm kind of chasing deadlines all the time but fortunately everything that I do I'm absolutely loving so yeah I do one picture book a year for HarperCollins that I write and illustrate I'm doing I think we've got contract for two or three activity books over the next few years and I'm illustrating for other people as well at the moment I'm I'm doing stuff with Philip Arda, Furry Perry Bean Cat books, which is good fun because that's quite nice, actually. When I just illustrate the books, you know, I can have my music on or listen to a podcast or whatever and just get on with the illustration without thinking about it too much. That's really quite nice. And I was lucky enough to be asked to illustrate the Parsley the Lion stories by the Michael Bond estate. Mm which is amazing. I mean, talk about the fantastic source material. It's just a joy to do that. So I really love everything I get offered to do. I absolutely love doing. I just, every now and then my wife says, be nice if you could cook a meal, you know, <laughs> once in a while. Because <laughs> at the moment I'm just sort of, yeah, chained to my desk. <laughs> Take a little bit of time out. Yeah, I think I need to slightly work on my work-life balance a little bit. But everything I'm doing is fabulous. And the big thing, the thing I'm really excited about is, I mentioned earlier, I've written my first middle-grade fiction novel, which is coming out towards the end of this year. I think it's coming out in the autumn. Yeah, that's so exciting. Yeah, it's really a completely different thing. Totally, totally different. It was one of those things. I think it was about two and a half years ago. I suddenly had a couple of months. I wrote a picture book much quicker than I thought I would. So I had a bit of spare time. So I'd had this idea for this story in my head and I just started writing it. And it's a bit like picture books. I didn't really know how to do it. I just made it up as I went along. And I think the thing is with a novel, you know, if you're a planner, that's sort of that's in your favour massively. And I, as I said earlier, I'm a real planner. So I literally, every single chapter I had a start and an end point and I did it that way. So I broke it down a bit like I do with my Draw with Rob drawings. I broke it down into bite-sized pieces so it didn't seem too overawed by the whole thing and I just started writing and then sort of nervously pressed that send button on the email to send it to my agent thinking she's just probably going to laugh at me but she said actually it's pretty good and we sent it out and it got a lot out there was a big auction and all that kind of stuff and so it was hugely exciting and hugely surprising that people actually liked what I'd written (laughs) and so yeah and another weird thing about that is that the lead times are much longer on it seems to me anyway middle grade because my picture books I'm sort of halfway through a picture book now that will come out in September so you don't have to wait too long till you see the actual book but with fiction you know as I said I finished writing this well god nearly two years ago I guess and it's not coming out until September so there's a bigger gap between writing it and it coming out but it's quite heavily illustrated as well actually it's much more illustrated than most other middle grade fiction so yeah I'm excited to see what everyone thinks of it well I can't wait your name generates excitement anyway so I think that's going to be a good starting point as it is but I'm sure it'll be very good So this podcast is going out on the 4th of March, which is not only the publication date of your latest Draw With Rob activity book, it's also World Book Day, which is a campaign to change lives through a love of books and shared reading. You are the official illustrator of World Book Day and have been since 2019. How did you get involved with it? Well, I've been involved for a bit longer than that, actually, because they've been doing these really fantastic events, actually, the week around World Book Day, whereby they sort of get a group of five or six authors and they put them in these really huge venues and they bus in all these kids from schools like 
thousands of kids from schools and we do this big, well, they used to call it the biggest book show on earth and we sort of all do 20 minutes for each. And they start off up in Scotland and they gradually move down throughout the country. So they get to see thousands and thousands of kids throughout the country and talk about books and the process of making books and the joy of reading and that kind of thing. I think I've done like three or four of those shows. It was very soon after I first started writing books, actually. So probably since about 2015, I've been doing them. And then Kirsten, who was running World Book Day at the time, asked me whether I fancied becoming the official illustrator. And it's a bit of a no-brainer, really, because it's a cause that I feel very passionate about. And I really uh, it's a real honour to be involved in any capacity. So to be the official illustrator was just like a dream come true. So yeah, I really love it. Yeah, I mean, it's such a brilliant idea, isn't it? The concept that children are given a voucher that entitled them to a free book. Yes. And for some children, that might be the first book they've ever owned. Yeah. Which is a pretty amazing thought, isn't it? It really is. I mean, that was quite eye-opening for me, actually, because, you know, whenever I do my live events, one of the first questions I ask is, hands up, who has a bedtime story? Because personally, I think the bedtime story and reading with children on that one-to-one basis is really the real key to literacy, I think. Mm-hmm. And depending on where I was doing these events, sometimes every single hand in the room would go up, which is lovely, but sometimes no hands would go up at all. And then you sort of investigate a bit further and you realise that there's lots of children out there that they just don't have books in their house. They don't have a single book in their house for whatever reason and they're the ones at the events they're the ones who always kind of respond the strongest to me and that really really react to the reading of the stories and the drawing of the pictures and that kind of thing and so it's a it's a fantastic initiative you know the key is reading for pleasure isn't it we need to get children reading for pleasure and not because it's something that they have to do at school because i think once children are reading because they want to read that's when they get all those benefits of reading that really like to the full it helps i mean i don't need to tell you but the things that reading can bring to your life is just like it's unbelievable isn't it you know apart from the obvious stuff like building vocabulary and learning language grammar skills that kind of thing I just think it's the stuff like reading stories can expose children to a wealth of places and characters and social situations that they wouldn't otherwise be exposed to it's all about curiosity developing a natural desire to learn is what really helps you progress achieve to your maximum potential in your life I think there's a real link if a child can't wait to turn the page to find out who the half-blood prince is Mm -hmm. then that will translate to them wanting to know the outcome of the War of the Roses or how plate tectonics works. Really, I think there's a real direct link between reading for pleasure to find out what happens in the story and wanting to learn about how the world works. And so I think it's super important. Yeah, and it's interesting when you talk to parents of reluctant readers, the thing we always say to them is they will enjoy reading, but it's about them finding the book that appeals to them. Yes, yeah, of course. And I think we do find quite a lot in the shop that there are certain parents have a bit of a funny view about books that they maybe wouldn't choose to read themselves. We hear that about a lot of things like the Tom Gates books and that kind of thing where they're kind of like oh well we prefer them to be reading stuff with more text and our response is just let them read let them read whatever they want to read yeah. because then ultimately you know, that will then have a knock on effect won't it? Of course yeah of course children have to read I mean again it's the reading for pleasure thing just let children read exactly as you say what they want to read if they enjoy reading it that's a, that's a really good thing because that will lead on to other books that might lead on to the books that the parents kind of in, in quotes want them to read so yeah you're totally right as far as I'm concerned any reading is good reading you know whether that is a comic book or whatever just need to feed the habit and hopefully it will develop into a lifelong habit which is what we want yeah and each year for world book day a bunch of new books are published specifically for this campaign and they're so good aren't they i mean these the fact that you can get a full complete book by some amazing authors i mean this year we've got like julia donaldson katherine rondale Derry landy holly jackson there's there's some great authors in there just to see them and give kids the opportunity to try these different authors out it's just fantastic oh it's amazing it's great what a brilliant thing yeah, great list. Now, it's become a bit of a thing for children to dress up on World Book Day. And as a parent, I'm sure you're fully aware of that. Yeah, I am. <laughs> now, that probably won't be happening as much this year. So I wonder whether it 
might be more of an opportunity to really focus on the books again. What do you think parents can do to get their kids excited about World Book Day during lockdown? Well, the first thing I think is parents reading with their children as much as they can all year round, not just on World Book Day. But the World Book Day website has got a wealth of activities and downloadable things and links to book related events that are definitely going to spark every single child's interest. I mean, I've recorded a special World Book Day episode of Draw with Rob, and that's just one of absolutely tons of things that are available online for parents to use as resources for their children around World Book Day. But yeah, you're right. I mean, the dressing up thing is great and anything we can do to get schools and children talking about books and reading is fine. But, you know, the dressing up thing is kind of secondary to the main aims of all of us at World Book Day because it's about getting books into kids' hands. That's what it's all about. Yeah, and there's nothing to stop children dressing up at home. Is there? Dress up as Harry Potter or whatever it is. It's a fun thing to do. Yeah, exactly. It might change your routine. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> bit, of, bit of an excitement until the day and part of World Book Day this year is show your shares this new hashtag campaign that they're trying to push which is where families are being encouraged to share photos or videos of themselves reading together which they could do yes. dressed up as their favourite character if they wanted to of course yeah. um, and the, the aim of that is to celebrate the joys of reading and books will you be getting involved in that oh I'm sure there will be something I will be making myself look ridiculous in some capacity or other <laughs> you you know you have to keep an eye on my uh, social media feeds in and around World Book Day yeah I'm sure you won't be disappointed <laughs> Fantastic. So we've chatted. To be honest, I say it's the end of every podcast because I always feel like it goes really quickly. But we've been chatting for nearly an hour now, which is which is a lot. Oh my gosh! I'm so sorry. <laughs> no, never. <laughs> I hope you're good at editing. <laughs> <laughs> It's been an absolute delight. It's been so much fun listening to you chat. And thank you so much for taking the time out to chat with me today. Oh, it's been a pleasure, Sarah. Thank you. Thank you so much for asking me. Thanks, Rob. All of the books mentioned during the podcast are available to buy from the Most Books website. This podcast has been presented and produced by members of the team at Mostly Books in Abingdon. If you enjoyed what you heard, please rate, review and subscribe because apparently it helps people find us.